You are listening to part one of the Permathon, an all-day, non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly forward slash poem donate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's program of events, publications, education and outreach work, and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Cafe. That's bit.ly forward slash poem donate. Thanks. Let me introduce the first of our 60 poets. We're going to be going from 12 till 10. I'm going to be here for the full thing. Hopefully I'm not going to be speaking again. I'm going to be sitting at the back going, oh my God, I'm exhausted. Um, Hilaire is our first poet, ladies and gentlemen. She writes... Hilaire writes and gardens in Battersea. She's co-author with Jewel Sparks of London Undercurrents, which is out now. Ladies and gentlemen, Hilaire. Thank you, and it's a great honour to um, actually kick off this wonderful poemathon. Um, and so I thought I would actually begin with a couple of poems about early starts. Father at 6am. Before his wife wakes to her teaching load. Before the children grumble out of bed before the traffic, the office, before meetings, memos, knocking heads together, before the day gets going, a tour of the house, drawing curtains, raising blinds, letting the cat out or in, then setting the breakfast table with tablecloth, napkins, toast rack, cereal bowls, plates, knives, spoons, muesli, cornflakes, orange juice, milk, marmalade, Vegemite, jam. The radio is a quiet prayer. Now the kettle, now tea, now he calls, time to get up, time to get up, all through the house. Rising for Nick. If every morning could be like this, a gentle tipping awake below deck, rolled in your sleeping bag, the river happening beneath you, around you, the anchor embedded deep, its tight tug a low vibration through the keel, snug under layers of boat smells, Canvas, grease, dew on plimsolls. And from the galley, the spit and sizzle of sausages. Your father whistling to the frying pan. Fifteen. In your holdall, a new exercise book. Sharpened pencils. The beginning of a story. And the next poem I'm going to read, I was lucky to win the inaugural City Harvest competition. Um, And City Harvest do great work um, uh, collecting surplus food from caterers and wholesalers and then distributing that to organisations that um, provide meals and food to homeless people and people in food poverty. And the theme of the competition is what food means to me. More than fuel... A piece of toast to start my day, 
from which a world expands in every bite, a crunchy thought to chew upon and savour distant olive groves, whose drizzled oil anoints my toast, and with tahini slathered on, thoughts shift to countless seeds and what each sesame may open, a hoard of ancient knowledge dancing on my tongue. And this next poem I wrote, uh, it, it comes from my experience of uh, living uh, a long time ago. I lived in West Berlin, so that tells you how it was quite a long time ago, for about six months and was learning German. So this is partly about that experience. Mohnkuchen. I eat it for the sound of it. Mohn, round and full in my mouth, somewhere between a sigh and a moan. The Konditorei becomes my German school. Ein Stück Mohnkuchen, bitte. Perfectly pronounced. My tongue puckering in anticipation of the moist slice. In the half moon of pastry, the poppy seeds glisten blackly like a mound of caviar. Their taste is sweet and earthy. I'm eating German soil. Then my tongue seeks out the last lingering seeds, black diamonds encrusted in the cracks between my teeth. And then the last two poems I'm going to read are from this beautiful anthology called Uncommon that my local stanza group that I belong to has, has recently published. And the stanza group, uh, very modestly, is called the Clapham Original Poets. Gumtree, Battersea Park. Far from home, like me. Long acclimatised and rooted in London soil. Three strong trunks hauling upwards under low sky. Wind rasps through crisped leaves that cast occasional shade from northern sun. Mate, I wish I knew your proper name. I whisper, cooey, wait for the leaves reply. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, this is the last one, in the hairdresser's chair. She reminds herself it is not electric, that torture is way off this scale. She tames the irritants by their naming the varnished heat, the slight choke of singed hair, that per persistent radio drizzle. In the hairdresser's mirror, her teenage self glums back, the stamp of bottled fury, a red blotch on her brow, mouth cross-stitched against unthinking jests. Cheer up, love, might never happen. Under the hairdresser's scissors, she wonders why Beauvoir and Greer have abandoned her. How it is that the mirror shatters all confidence. Why looks matter still at her age. When she tries on the hairdresser's shoes, it's quite a performance. The toreador swish of the gown, the snippety snipping, the one-way conversation with a reflection jittery as a cornered hen. Then she remembers, 
wasn't it butchers her mother detested. Their winks, their how are we girls as they parceled up meat. She nods, smiles squint-wise at the fuzzy offering of her nape. Yes, definitely, butchers. Thank you. Yes, right, so um, um, the next poet, her pamphlet Fledglings is published by Red Squirrel Press. We're looking forward to hearing Susanna Fitzpatrick. How's that? That should be right. Okay, thanks everyone. Um, yeah, I'm going to start by reading some poems from my pamphlet Fledglings. There's a couple of copies in the Tombola as well. And it's all about pregnancy and motherhood. Wretch. Even the word brings nausea, excites my stomach's vicious riptide. Trying to work, I find by accident the verb is Anglo-Saxon, reiken. I am soothed by its no-nonsense cadence, earthiness, my mother tongue reclaiming pregnancy from antiseptic Latin, offering a hand from women over centuries, each of us desperate, possessed by sickness and ambivalence, as we tumble to our knees, snatch back our hair. The next poem is a specular, which as you probably know is where the second stanza mirrors the first, and that seemed to me to be a good way of writing about pregnancy. Duet. I sing to you. My notes rise like bubbles through a darkness warmed by breath, telling an old, old story like the freshest news. You listen. Stir in time to the music. Reassure me. I move my hand across the dome of you, your fingers tracing mine on the other side of my belly's glass. On the other side of your belly's glass, your fingers tracing mine across the dome of you. Reassure me. I move my hand in time to the music, and you listen. Stir like the freshest news telling an old, old story through a darkness warmed by breath. My notes rise like bubbles. I sing to you. Waters. Midnight. A sudden bubbling into the bed you were conceived in, and I start awake, swing damp legs as fast as my eight months bump allows, fling on lights, look down, shaking at the spreading stain, sniff its strange freshness. An early thaw. Spring is here. quake. There is no thought. I brace, legs wide, palms flat against the wall. Ligaments pop as huge invisible hands pull at my hips, prise me apart. My pelvis groans at the speed, an iceberg carving. I ride its wake. I do not push. I am the push, channeling a power I've always had, freeing both of us. Delivery. We hurtle down the corridor, a sheet thrown over my tented knees, but you are travelling towards the light faster than they can run. As they fumble with the door to the labour ward, I feel your head pop out. I know the rest of you will follow, and you do, landing in a midwife's just-ready palms. Brief lull, and then your cry, relief at its strength, its will. You are placed in my arms, tiny, 
wiry, thrashing angrily. I sing to you, breathlessly. Oh, good, okay. <laughs> Thirst. Insatiable. I wince at the fierceness of your suck. Smile to feel the prickle in my breasts as you milk me, your need draining mine. And this is the title poem, Fledglings. I stroke the tiny kites of your shoulder blades. Imagine wings. Gingerly, I stretch my own. It's been so long since I trusted them. As your nestlings down gives place to feathers, I'll relearn flight with you. Let's stand, teeter happy, brink thrilled, taste the wind. And we'll soar, my darling, we will soar. Um, so from birth to death, um, this, the next poems are from a sequence I wrote about the death of my mum two years ago. So they kind of run into each other. So um, thanks for the applause, but don't worry about applauding in between each one because there's quite a few short ones. And the sequence is called Endgame. And this is the part that deals with the, the grieving process. If I call mum, loudly, mum, again, mum, Louder, mum, screaming now, mum, the white heat of need, mum, will burn, mum, all the way to the afterlife, mum, and I will reach through, mum, and snatch you back. Dream. I'm in the passenger seat of my car, cradling not my baby, but your head, your lifeless head. One of those days, shitty, flu of the soul. So, of course, I reach for the phone, go to call you, slam, and grief grabs me by the hair, slap hard across my face. Stupid, you're dead, and we will never speak again. Dream. You're alive, in hospital, and I know we'll have to do it all over again. What if you can't rest? What if pain keeps you? What if you are still in that cubicle or the freezer, lost? Because I don't know. I don't know. Dream, something clutches my wrist, a disembodied hand, not yours, it won't let go. It is winter, you are dead. It is cold, your garden frozen. There is ice, locked water. I smash smithereens, hold a slice, Weeping light, sea striations, desperate feathers, held tight, unable to fly. I take up running, find I'm fast, go faster, 
Further, this heart will pump, these lungs breathe, this body live, defiant of the truth that it will stop. I ran to your death and missed it. Now I accelerate. What else can I outrun? Grief is an odd slant beast, all camouflage. Anticipate, and it hides. I play the game, roll the dice of every day, plod from square to square, knowing at any time a snake can bite with gone. How am I doing? Oh, fine, okay, I'll do a couple more. <laughs> These are short ones. A small diamond ring, a gift to you from your mother, then yours to me. I loved the love, mother to daughter, and again, my own part in the chain. When you died, I sought it, put it on my right hand to keep you there. Today, the central stone has vanished. I press one fingertip into its empty socket, hold until it burns, then watch the tiny dent. It takes a while to go. The grieving brain won't talk to itself, an overloaded processor glitching, bug-ridden. Why else, in the middle of saying I'm dreading Mother's Day, would I break off, remind myself to get you a card? I can do two more or one more. Two more, okay. <laughs> Driving, I pass an advert for Nana's Magic Soup, and off goes the mind, connection snapping into place like mortises. The social worker with the same name, who helped us dispose of your hoist as we filleted the house of redundant aides. How she came on her way home, cried with us around the bed we'd yet to return. How it all comes down to this, an empty bed, an empty bed. I'm going to finish with this one, which is the end of the sequence. My husband breaks his arm, and I am back at the hospital you died in. I walk the corridors I ran through to your death. Watch for grief. No, the fear is there, but I can shake it off. Until I return for his prescription. He at home, the kids in bed, the adrenaline waning, the hospital quiet. And here comes headlong grief, blaring silence, the slam of displaced air, whoomph, the full body shock. And I am pulled to the ward you died in, the bay, the bed. But if anyone asks, who do I say I'm visiting? This is the last place you lived, and now I have to know. I have to know if you're still here. I lay a hand on the door, then turn, go to the chapel, sob, pick up my husband's painkillers, go home. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Susanna. Now, our next poet is also a workshop person, songwriter, novelist, show producer, spoken word p promoter, uh, writer and frontman. Frontman, sorry. Uh, Joshua. There's. Hi. Uh, hello. Hey. Uh, big up to the Poetry Society for doing this. Uh, they've been very helpful to my career. This was where I started, so it, it feels good kind of coming here to be a part of this fundraising exercise. And it's great that they've raised so much money. Uh, spend, spend more money. Uh, um, <clears throat> all my poems are really large, so I'm only going to do one. And uh, what else do I want to say? Um, 
Yeah, this is a poem about uh, me and my dad, because my dad didn't really appreciate me having a poetry career, because it's a bit of an oxymoronic statement, poetry career. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wrote this poem, and it goes like this. This one's about me and my dad. Two years ago, the bonds we had began to sag. I mean, unfortunately, he lived across the sea, so naturally there was a bit of lag. And recently, he's been cross. The reason being, I took a course in some fad, poetry, clean your mouth after you say something dirty. You see, back in my homeland, children are more than children. They're investments. Investments suggest a path to profit. So I tell him I'm diverting from it. From now on, I'll be chasing sonnets. His response is sudden, swift, and so torrid. You want to teach any Nigerian patients, have him argue with his parents. You want to know if my dad is mad yet. He'll be stuck repeating that one same sentence. You want to waste your fuck, you want to waste your fuck, you want to waste your fuck, you, this boy, you want to waste your life. I'm not going to waste my life, dad. Shut up. Sorry, dad. This one's about my dad and me. He lives across the sea, but at least an even more, we had a family meet. Dinner was served by my mom. Began with a family treat. Fried rice, fried plantain, and very big pieces of very fried chicken. Tell you off, me and my mom in the sitting room. Me and my brother in the sitting room. Mother walks in like the harbinger of doom, and in her hand was father on the phone loudspeaker, and she'd place him in the middle. Make forget Lewis Carroll. Five minutes with my dad will make any Alice little. You've never heard a belittling. You've never seen a belittling. Five minutes with my dad will make her slap to the face, feel like a dose of vitamins. Meanwhile, my brother sat by the side, spread wide, eyes tired, look on his face like, oh well. My brother keeps a misery like Roswell. He should work for the government. He's all talk, no telling. Anything they ask, he's quick on the selling. What does Roland do? Sound engineering. He's a pop DJ. He walks down the road playing Britney Spears for £5.50 an hour. But my parents don't want to know that. At least he's making money. You are going to die poor. I'm not going to die poor. Shut up. Sorry, Dad. Low self-esteem is a vicious dish. The dismissal of a parent is something I wouldn't wish on even my worst enemy. I know he thinks in his own way he's doing me a favor. You see, I know my dad. I know him well. He's carried on his own weight. Sure, a lot of mistakes, a lot of risks taken. Can't say he's too pleased with his own fate. And I think he sees in me the scheme to set things straight. You see, where I come from, respect goes to the oil, the bullet, and food on the plate, and the pen don't weigh much on them stakes. The speakerphone is trembling. Treble from my dad's voice, because he's so bloody irate, trying to hijack my dreamlike Somali pirate. And my mom don't say much, hush on the lip in her T-shirt, leggings, and slips. She nods away to whatever my dad would say, and the more violent his voice, the more her head shakes. That's how they used to relate. Now, don't get me wrong. Me and my dad, we did get on. I'll give you an example. You remember that uh, song, that 997 song by Eminem? My name is, my name is, my name is, chicka chicka, it's the dawn. I played it to my dad, look what he's done. He goes through his record collection, and he plays the track that that track was sampled from. My father used to have a saying, I was your age before you. You will never be my age before me. Because that's me and my dad. Remix meets original. Sequel meets origin. And even though I've grown taller, I could never overshadow him. But you see, I'm on my own lane now. 
I'm whole grain now. I'm trying to explain to him that the path I've chosen may not be clear to him, but for me, it leads to a new thing, a true thing, a me. Shut up! Sorry, Dad. He says there's no money in poetry. It's all right having a fancy vocabulary, but that will never get you an audience with a bank or the tummy. You're underestimating steady cash in hand. It's the bedrock many backbones stand. You can't build a family on backward plans. I say he doesn't understand. He says, shut up. I say, sorry. Six months, six evenings, no budging. It's like we're playing tennis with muffins. Goodness comes at me with full force. I don't want it. I send it back to the sauce. Mom's nodding, brother's all welling, nobody's speaking until Christmas evening. No chicken, no rice, no phone. Relatives have gathered, and relatives only gather when things really matter. Times are great, and times are grave. My mom is head to toe in the collar of raven. My brother's in the bedroom, locked door, welling. Topic of the day, who's going to pay? For the burial, the ceremony, the party in the wake. Oh yes, he has two sons. They'll provide. What careers are they in? Crap. <laughs> my heart has the tonic, but my pocket has no gin. Ever was a moment, this is the moment of no win. Oh, my dad shut up, spin around and around in my noggin. Till I get a tap on my shoulder, it's my uncle. I can't look him in his face to stare at his sandals. You are the writer, son, aren't you? Yes, uncle. <clears throat> Every time I met your father, he would always mention you. Until this day, I don't know what he meant by that. But then he followed it up with, you should write something about your dad. Something long. Something good. This was about me and my dad. Thank you very much. You guys have been an awesome audience. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you so much, Joshua. Um, You're listening to part one of the Poemathon, an all-day, non-stop, sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly slash poem donate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's program of events, publications, education and outreach work and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Cafe. That's bit.ly slash poem donate. Thanks. The next poet is, um, has her first collection of, of poems, Moon Juice, that won the 2017 Clipper Prize and was nominated for the 2018 Carnegie Medal. Uh, Kate Wakelin. Just checking my flies weren't undone. I did a poetry reading with my flies undone the other day. Um, so I'm going to read some poems, first of all, from uh, The Rainbow Faults, so a pamphlet of... So uh, Moon Juice is a poem, poems for children. I might, if it's not horribly misjudged, I might read a couple of poems for children. Um, but I'll start with some poems for grown-up. Um, so the first one I'm going to read is called Law, uh, but more like folklore, the spelling. And it's a kind of made-up uh, goddess, possibly from the north somewhere. Um, it's called Law. Her stride says Comet. Javelin-tongued, she spits the locks off doors, skins lies, furnishes dark shapes with a song, 
When they tried to crown her, she shot burning through the crowds. Her gaze is thunder, then a famine. Her voice, a hundred golden coins. Sometimes she erases a constellation, pins the watchman to the ground and drums up dawn with her fat clogs. She sways to the cheers of long souls. Her blood is a drawling highway. She feasts on clay and thistles, rides rivers, salts dreams, mutters the rats to sleep. Um, I'm going to stay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, I'll stay slightly skyward, but that poem is with a poem called Hotel for Astronomers. And this was sparked by um, finding out that there's a, there's a hotel in the Atacama Desert in Chile that you can only stay at if you're a commissioned astronomer. Um, so I thought I'd write this poem about it. And um, uh, this account, I'm sure, is exactly what this hotel's like in real life. So this is called Hotel for Astronomers. We did our best to steal entry shouldering telescopes, wearing faraway looks and starry belts. But the management turned us away, glassy-eyed. Availing ourselves of a sun-fat afternoon for cover, next we attempted the service entrance, concealed behind a haulage of graph paper and lens polish until the pale-faced man on reception pulled us up. So we opted to gaze from afar, tracking back into the sand to peer through tunnelled glass and view the astronomers' single-ringed squints, the back of their ruined, white-struck necks, the zigzag wonder of their dining-room table plans that shifted faultlessly as the skies. By day, we weighed the shy laundering of their white coats, tallied who was snoozing in translucent hammocks or sifting the configuration of another's freckles. The astronomers' acute interrogations of the time-space continuum meant it was customary, we observed, for quarrels to erupt over the hotel reservations procedure. Sometimes, the low hum that rose from the plush arrowhead of their single concentration interfered with the television reception and a lone astronomer with a hankering for Australian soaps would ring the curiously soundless bell on the concierge's desk, asking for something to be done. We would note this down. By night, we caught the traces of their star barks and sized their comet-spying jigs, buffered as we lay in the salt grass by the haphazard accord of hyper-aridity and the meticulous glint of land. Oh, thanks. It's really thrilling, all the clapping. Um, so th this next poem um, is a kind of conflation poem, which uh, so takes two things that seemingly have no connection whatsoever and tries to make a poem out of them. Um, and so it's called Watching One's Loved One Play the Piano. And then the other half is Scalp Scab. So um, that kind of, well, whether or not you experience this, a kind of compulsive uh, need to sort of pick Pick your head, pick, pick scabs on your scalp. Um, so let's see if it makes a poem. Watching one's loved one play the piano, scalp scabs. Piano is your dear chink, softest centre. It is where pleasure and piety kindle high findings. A tidy, massive world that is all body, no body. I am mostly not there when it happens. Fellow percussionist, I blindly play the ruby coalescence. 
thumb my rough drum skin until something molto dolce flows. I like the flush that blooms during your brain work. I like your sonambulist page turns, and that when full throttle you issue a delicious force field which will not be breached. I like, too, the meaty fidget that lurks always in your fingers. We do not talk about mine and their magnet work, the hot little nag that is all attraction, pleading nail to skull and skull to nail as it tracks its sickly axis. Once I knew my way around a keyboard, now you know your way across my moon head and its geocoso sea of tranquility. These hands have landed where they need to be. Uh, I've got loads of minutes. Uh, I'm going to read another slightly musical poem. Um, uh, so this poem, the, um, I wrote this for an event that was themed around the Tempest, and I was thinking about... Um, uh, this idea of Prospero and his kind of power play on the island and how he used sound and music a lot to control people. And I was thinking a bit about the father-daughter relationship and how this idea of sound and music could be a kind of point of control between a father and daughter. So it's called Tacit. Oh, and then, uh, <laughs> there's a point in Act 4 where Prospero says, No tongue, all eyes, be silent! And then a cue that soft music begins. So I think that this idea of silence and music... So tacit. In the beginning came the hush. Nub of his rule, the anti-ruckus, my quiet kept to forge his crown. This was a daughter tutored mute, speech no sooner to bloom than be swaddled. He saw me stitch the piece deep into my cheeks, gobble down the word and keep my trap shut tight. But sound was this one's ministry, how he sculled and beggared, how he wrought rule from stagnancy to whip the heavens red. To bid this child dumb was too brisk, too plain. To grip his realm was to fix and furnish a daughter with noise, to make her sound. And so, turning nine, I woke to bells hooked from the hems, bronze blinking at my ankles, a daughter cast for the day as his chime, the next morning brought looping strings hooked across the arms, winds instructed to duck through this, his prone little harp. Before the third night sank, I caught his drift. Speechless, I was to take up the tune. From here I plucked gut strings, puckered at trumpets, trilled across flutes, pipes, keys. Captive as an echo, I bred my faculties as he sat deep in his chair in blank pride, in his maestro's assurance that he ruled and ruled and ruled. And for a time, I waited for an end, for when he let the sounding stop and bid me surface a thought. Instead, I saw my skin begin to thicken, drawing stiff across a ring of bones, and I knew in not so many beats... I'd soon be just his drum. Uh, I'll do one more from this book. This is, is that the right time? Okay, so is it... Okay, uh, so I'll read... Uh, this is called In the Next Room, which is, I suppose, possibly a poem about my wildest hopes and dreams, if they're not all that. Um, in the Next Room... 
You will casually sweat moss and sea salt. The tree's pumping hearts will soothe your shining troubles while, on the hour, pods of whales will drift overhead, casting their sincere shadows across your state of mind. You will find you have the bone structure for a French crop. Your dreams will be embroidered for you in silk minutes, and when you wake, you will be encouraged to run that sculpted finger of yours along the threads and to marvel at the perceptive ochres, the hot, insolent purples. Cup a hand to an ear at any moment and you will hear your earthy, self-sufficient grandmother singing you a folk song. The days will leak constantly into twilight and you will love that. So I'm just going to read, read some children's poems, um, if that's okay, if there's a few minutes. Um, so I'm going to read a poem called Little Known Facts, which is quite an excluding poem in this room that these are facts uh, which are comprehensible only to the under-13s, um, but see what you make of them. Little known facts. In secret, children can turn light bulbs on and off with just their eyebrows. When a child sneezes, the nearest adult briefly loses all reception on their mobile phone. Left unwashed, children's feet smell of perfectly cooked spaghetti. You can predict the next day's weather based on how tightly a child's hair curls after a bath. Extra curly means sunshine. Behind children's left ears grow tiny cacti, which yield delicious juice every summer. Children can see through brick walls of up to 15 centimetres thick if the thing on the other side is definitely worth looking at. When a child jumps up and down, fish in the nearest pond rise to the surface and blow a celebratory stream of bubbles. Children can set up a reliable internet connection in any location using a pigeon and two drinking straws. And children are able to smell a lie being told from 180 metres away. I've probably got time. Is there time for one more? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, a new poem, also still for children, uh, which is, I guess, about all sorts of things. For me, it's a poem about making things and freedom. Uh, it's called Weird Cake. <clears throat> I decided to bake a weird cake. I said, I want this cake to be weird. I want this cake to be so strange, so odd, so bafflingly unlikely with a capital uh, that this cake, this weird cake, might just change the face of the planet. So I got to work. I started off with the standards, eggs, flour, sugar, a bit of butter, and then I got weird with it. I wanted this cake to have an uncanny crunch, so I mixed in some dog biscuits, a burnt crust of toast, and a tantalising quantity of gravel. I wanted this cake to be strangely soft in the middle, so I stirred in a dozen dandelion clocks, some bottom-of-the-pocket fluff, and as I whisked, I whispered some really sympathetic stuff to the bowl. Someone said this cake wouldn't rise, so I looked them hard in the eye and added a rubber band and a rocket blaster and the elastic from my brother's newly washed, we're not animals, underpants. Someone else said it wouldn't be moist. Cakes being moist is a big deal for a lot of people. So I made the baby dribble in it, and I let a rain cloud loose on it, and I got a whale to do his blessed, best blowhole whoosh right by it. At this point, people were really staring. Someone said, that cake doesn't look quite right to me. Someone else shook their head and said, not in my oven. But I didn't need their oven. I baked it by myself. And do you know what? When that cake came out, it was weird. 
it was weird, which was exactly the way I wanted it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, sorry, I know there's quite a few. Hello. Oh, my sweet, I like the shirt. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, uh, thank you, Kate. Now, the next poet is a multilingual classicist who loves maths and programming, Felix Stokes. So, today I thought I'd share some translations I've made of poems by the Roman author Catullus. Uh, basically, he fell in love with a girl he called Lesbia and had a really bad breakup. Uh, I've replicated the ancient meters in English using syllable stress as well, so listen out for that. Uh, the first one is Catullus 51 in Sapphix. See them? Sorry, no. Cool. Okay, so this is Catullus 51 in Sapphix. See the man? Yeah, no, he's a god, it looks like. See the god? Yeah, no, he's above the gods, man. See him sit right there, look at you. Again, he sees you, he hears you. Sweetly, it's that laughter and fuck, I'm gone now. All the senses whoosh, because I look at you there, lesbia, just look. And my words, they kind of... But my tongue, it ties, and beneath my thin limbs, sparks erupt, explode, and a sound, your own sound, rings and rings in ears, as a couple nights now swap with my old eyes. That, Catullus, thinking, is trouble talking. Sighing makes you glad, and you're sighing too much. Wistfulness. You know how the kings and cities fell at her first call. So the next poem is... <laughs> so the next poem is Catullus 5 in hendecasyllables. Let's live, lesbia, let us love while we live, and we'll take all the tales of evil old age, and we'll price them a puny penny each, yes. Suns may fall, but they rise again for morning. When we fall, we are doomed to rest in mourning for one night, only one forever night time. Kiss me now with a thousand, then a hundred thousands more. Go again another hundred, then more thousands, and then another hundred. Let's kiss so many thousands more than men can count. Let's throw our counting hands away. Let us not know, nor a bad or jealous man get sad, mad, sad when he knows the count of kisses. So the next one is uh, a little bit less cheery. Catullus 8, after they've broken up. Oh man, Catullus, you're incapable now, huh? Just look, it's all gone, and you'd better believe it. Back then, the suns, they used to shine on you brightly when you'd be off. Where? Oh, wherever she'd take you. We loved her. And will love like that come back? Never. But 
back again there, we would have the most fun, man. I know you wanted that. She didn't not want to. I swear, the suns, they used to shine on you brightly. But now she does not want. You idiots stop too. Don't follow when she flees. You don't live in pity, but pull yourself together. Put your foot down now. Goodbye, my love, babe. Now Catullus's foot's down. He will not look for you, nor ask if you don't want. But it'll hurt you bad when you are asked nothing. You bitch, to hell with you. What life for you's left now? Who now will approach you, and who will think you're cute? Who now will you love? Whose will rumour say you are? Well... Who will you kiss? Whose two lips will you bite off? But you, Catullus, put your foot down, man. And the next ones are kind of short, so you don't need to applaud, like, applaud between them. Uh, so this one is in hendecasyllables, and it's Catullus, eight, uh, Catullus 58. Sorry, Caelius, who gets mentioned, is another of Clodia's ex-boyfriends. That old lesbian, Caelius, the girl, our girl, that lesbian, which Catullus only loved, that lesbian more than self and his friends. Now, in four penny streets and alley dark ways, she fucks up the descendants of the great town. Uh, the next one is an elegiac couplet, Catullus 58, 85, it's short and good. So, I hate and love. Why do I, perhaps you would ask me? No idea, but I do. Feeling it tears me apart. And so this final one is Catullus 51 again, uh, which was the first one I read. And... Claudia is Lesbia's real name, and this is by Monty. I'll explain who that is afterwards. What a man who sits again and again. He sees you there. Think only in spondies. We know who you are. Transcendental. I would even say God is the sweet song of your laugh. He, God's let it go. No man has ever won against those odds. The man, God's let it go, almost makes you mad, and I think she has taken from the day. Time with you makes me go, men turn to shadow. Then let me burn, swap with my own poetry. I hear your laugh will send me into yours, both of you burning between the pages of books. Claudia's echoing name is a death in its own way. And every night you yearn for your name, Lesbia. It fades. I know, of course, you, Lesbia. Ears ring. I stare at you. And too much. Bright eyes set a wordlessness within me. The poem ends. So, context, in November, me and Tate Standage, who was there and is cool, uh, we translated Catullus 51 every single day, and then on the last day, I gave Monty, who is my laptop, 
all of our translations and then got him to generate po chunks of poetry based on that using Markov chains. And then I compiled those together and that was what you just heard. Nice. So this is just, uh, this is an elegiac couplet that I wrote that is just, it's a bad joke, but I can read it if you want. <laughs> and so the Latin is, Per venit paterin roman tum tempore vectus, tantum dona wit barbaricam tunicam, which translates to, my dad went to Rome having traveled through time, and he only gave me this barbaric tunic. <laughs> The t-shirt I have is a bad Latin translation of uh, Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up, but <laughs> I could recite the chorus of that in Latin if you really want. Te nunquam linquam, te nunquam fallere possing, tu nunquam, yeah, sorry. Te nunquam linquam, te nunquam fallere possing, errabo nunquam, proxima semper eris. Tu nunquam lacrimes, tu, uh, uh, tu nunquam lacrimes, ten, uh, sorry. We won't know. Tu nunquam lacrimes, da 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 you bebo, nec unquam mendax, walk it to be nocaean. The end. Now, next up is a wonderful, enigmatic poet and playwright. His first collection, Tutti Frutti, is out now, and the Saboteur Awards. And uh, welcome, Dino Mahoney. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. God, isn't this fantastic? A whole 12 hours of poetry. And I'm having an amazing day. I've started off, I've been on the high street um, campaigning for the Lib Dems, and that's brilliant. Because when you're on, when you're on Twitter and everything, you know you kind of in a little bit of a, a sort of a you know echo chamber. But when you're on the street, you don't know who you're going to bump into. So I've been hearing some great things this morning, and um, and then as as Heather said after this, complete surprise. Um, Steve and me and Claire, where they Dino and the Diamonds, we we sing poetry and we've been shortlisted for a saboteur for best collaboration. So after this, have to forgive me if I slip off, because I've got to catch a train up to, um, up to Birmingham, to Brum. Anyway, poetry. Um, Songbird rides the MTR. I think of this as my, um, although it's set in Hong Kong, it's at a time when uh, usually older guys used to take their birds on the tube for a ride. And it was really quite, they don't do it anymore after bird flu, but it used to be quite an incredible thing. And why, why I think of this as my Common Garden poem was that um, it was broadcast on Common Garden Station. They, uh, there was a, a thing with the um, Poetry Society. So it was quite an incredible thing to be on the Common Garden Station and hear your voice reading one of your poems. You kind of think, who's that? You think, oh, it's me. You know, so, and I still, every time I go to Common Garden, I still, it was a ma magic time. It was a magic day to have your poem there. Other people's too. Anyway, Songbird rides the MTR. MTR is the uh, Hong Kong tube, the name of the tube there. 
held out before him like a paper lantern. The old man takes his covered cage down a flow of metal stairs to the underworld. Nerve on a perch, the Leothrix, red bill glued shut, seed heart bursting, in a metallic roar is rushed along granite boreholes beneath Hong Kong. Rising up the main exit, he strolls to a nearby park, unveils the wooden cage, hangs it from a branch of an osmanthus tree. The tiny troubadour twitches into life, its pent-up silvery song trilling through bars, scaling up past banks of grumbling air conditioners to where raptors soar on towering updrafts. Thank you. This one's called Praha. It's, it's the Czech word for Prague. And um, I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I went to Prague once and within about an hour I had everything nicked. I had my passport, wallet, everything went. Um, but then I wrote this poem about it and I was surprised at the way I'd responded, reacted to, to being robbed. Praha. As you step out into the crowded, cobbled streets, someone's waiting for you, someone you do not know, some ordinary Joe or Joseph who bumps into you, apologizes, moves on. When later you discover your loss, behind the dismay steals a feeling of enlightenment. Your passport and wallet swapped for anonymity, the mendicant's bowl. You can't recall the exact moment you were singled out, but it's close to the time the old town with its bohemian charm stole your heart. Now, unencumbered, you are more truly a stranger, free to discover who you want to be. <laughs> Thank you. And here we go. And the next one is Fable. Kidnapped when I was on the wing, you were taken to a secret lair, plucked, cased in armor, taught to chew leaves, lumber on all fours, retract your head when I approached, believing I meant to carry you off, drop you on rocks, crack you open. But look, you too have a beak, and tucked away inside you are wings. Unpack them, push them through gaps in your shell, then flap them hard till you rise, soaring up to meet your song. Thank you. Uh, this one, uh, Dr. Mirabilis and the Brass Ball That Will Save England, is, is based on uh, Roger Bacon, a 13th century philosopher and uh, alchemist, who believed he could create a robot that, when it spoke, could put a circle of brass around England and protect it from the Europeans. <laughs> you got it. He was an early Brexiter. <laughs> 
now, she muses, do we keep them out? Well, Mirabilis will know, pipes up the fool, a mophead jokester swamped in crumpled clothes. He's as wizardly in truth as in trickery. Go fetch, she charges, crossing leathered legs. Forth he bumbles north to distant shires, home to freckled Vikings and offspring of the Commonwealth, finds the alchemist hard at work, transforming foaming pottle into piss. Brought before her, the magician marvels, the automaton he has dreamed of making. Off come his spectacles, the rhetoric rises. May a storming Brexit thunder from its cave and dim fair Europe to a dark eclipse. <laughs> he smiles the way Daredevil Drake once did when busting Spain or cloaking puddles for his queen. Even if ten bonies reigned in Brussels, with all the power they command, they shall not touch a grass of English ground, for I will circle England round with brass. A shining wall sprung from your mouth. Command, and it shall ring the English strand bolder than the slabs that slice Berlin, the barricade that stays the Latin tide encircling like the mighty ring of Jove from Dover to the marketplace of Rye. Then speaks the head. Sovereignty, it says. Et nunc sempera men, an owlish friar drones while taking selfies for his Instagram. A flash of lightning. Big Ben wakes and booms. A witch swoops in with a frozen leg of lamb. This meat is not for turning, she declares, and brings it down hard upon the head. The wall is dead. <laughs> Paul, how much longer have I got? Uh, you've got plenty of time. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, gift. If you see us climbing over the wall into your garden, don't call the law. We come with gifts. Not in these ragged bundles. No frankincense or myrrh in there. No gold sewn into the lining. We bring you something else. Something mislaid for so long, you've forgotten what it was you lost. As you open the door to let us in, perhaps you will remember what it was, for now it is found. Uh, this one's called Pride. It's about going on a gay parade in London, but it's also about at the end of the parade, what happens at the end of the parade when all the cheering stops and the marching and you have to kind of like go back into the streets with, you know, like regular street people and everything. Pride. <laughs> in sparkling lurex, the trans woman moves forward on her scooter. Pup boys in leather dog masks strain ahead on leashes, and as we round the corner, a breeze catches our rainbow flags, blows your hand into mine. The crowd 
lined up the length of Oxford Street, cheer as man and man we march proud and fearless to Trafalgar Square. In Whitehall, marshals wave us to a side street. Parade over, we stack banners, take group photos, hug, say goodbye. The golden lady motors off. Handlers unleash their pups. And as we merge back into the crowds, I notice we're no longer holding hands. And this is a love poem. I met the love of my life in a gay disco in Hong Kong, and it's called The One. Overcrowded basement, bodies crushed against a bar, we swap smiles. And in the teeming aviary of tipsy men shrieking above the boom and thump of dance anthems, we are drawn into a stillness so singular that when the lights go up on a shabby, shrunken dive, we are still in wonderland. My heart spinning like a glitter ball. And I know this is the moment, and you are the one. Okay, and uh, one more to, to end with. Uh, uh, this is a short little one about uh, being a postman. You, you know, sometimes you get those Christmas jobs and you go around shoving cards and stuff through the letterbox. And it's about that. And I've called it Togo. The buried street glares with snow. In the polar brilliance, I squint at my gloveful of envelopes, matching their smudged arithmetic with numbers on doors. A stamp, Togo, tropical bird, bright as blood, melts a hole in my frosted eye. I fold and poke the large stiff card through the door's tight jaw. Here it lands with a light matted thump, the sound a bird might make, fallen frozen from a tree. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dino, and best of luck. Um, rooting for you there. You are listening to part one of the Permathon an all-day, non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly slash poemdonate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's programme of events, publications, education and outreach work and keep the doors open to our central London venue, The Poetry Café. That's bit.ly slash poem donate. Thanks. It was commended in the 2016 National Poetry Competition and shortlisted for the 2017 Bridgeport Prize. Holly Singlehurst.
Hello. Can you hear me? Good. I'm a bit, I'm a bit short. Because <laughs> um, we are recording. That's the reason why I'm making sure you're speaking into the mic. Is that working now? I think, yeah. It was Good. working already. But Brilliant. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, it's really cool to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, the Poetry Society is particularly important to me, and the cafe is an awesome space, and I'm very happy to be helping in a little, a little way. So, This poem is called Still Life from My Window. The grey sky means nothing but rain, and rain is water, and the grass is the grass. A cow is meat and blood, milk for butter and muscle. My mother is my mother, upstairs running a hot bath, curling her hair in her fingers the way she always does. I write this down and I fold it, as if the truth is something I can bend without breaking the words. Um, I feel like mine are all going to be a bit lower than the <laughs> happiness of the lovely last poems, but um, this one actually is called Poem in Frozen Mouthfuls, and it's after a poem by Chen Chen called Poem in Noisy Mouthfuls that explores uh, sexuality, identity, amongst other things. Um, and I think a lot of poems are about writing poems and sort of poeminess, and, and this one's about, I guess, about writing so much and saying so much, but, but not being able to say what you want to say, necessarily. So, poem in frozen mouthfuls. Our water pipes froze in the snow. I turned on the shower, the sink downstairs twisted hard on the kitchen taps, but nothing came out. And when I returned to a wet house, water flooding the floorboards, the sink spilling over like a bath, to the sound of heavy rain and of drains and the desperate swallowing of plugs, I was inside this poem's wet walls, which were my skin, and of course I was crying. Every poem I write is a crying body, and every crying body is mine. My mum once said, all poets are self-obsessed. I read my thoughts to everyone, but I told them nothing. I'm trying to tell you something, but it sticks in my teeth, pushes against my cheeks like hot blood overflowing. Oh, forgive me for this, but I can't say the words. Forgive me, for the whole street had no water, and I have no words but my hunger, my dry tongue, my empty mouth opening and closing and not saying my truth. I tore this page out of my diary and titled it Brave, posted it only to myself, never opened the envelope. I left my wet house and ate mouthfuls of snow, let it slip from my body as spit. I am trying to explain this, which is almost everything. The wet walls, the soaked floorboards, the rain, the hot blood, the sink spilling over. Thanks. Um, so that one was also kind of about a real life experience when my water pipes did freeze and I came home and I tidied the house and then wrote the poem. <laughs> Seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Um, this one, this next poem is also kind of about, I guess, a real life experience um, that I had last weekend at the tip and also about um, ballet because I'm going to see a ballet later and I was thinking about it. So This one's called At the Ballet. At the ballet, the dancers thrust their bodies into shapes, 
move together as Mercury does, their arms and legs, hands on a clock face. I stand, peel off my body, sling it on the back of my seat. I fly down to the stage on invisible string. I am giving a reading, not of my poems, but extracts from a book where the devil comes to earth as a man. Never had a body before, so he can't stop touching everything, rubbing his hands on the sandpaper surface of an unpainted wall, putting anything he can into his mouth. Back at my house, at the kitchen table, I'm writing a poem about a ballet. My body is too awkward for their fluid shapes. It aches, and in the poem, I can take it off. In the poem, the devil slips it on, walks out into the street, his feet hit hard on the paving stones. His hungry fingers touch everything. And not everything is a poem. But in the hot May sunshine, I once saw a woman cry at the tip. She was throwing chandeliers into the skip from the top of a flight of stairs. A flight of stairs is a poem. A pane of glass. A dance, even. The way their bodies fall through the air and land on the stage without breaking. And the audience shatters in applause. Um, I guess a lot of the poems have, that I've read and that anyone writes respond to things that happen in their everyday life. Um, I saw a quote, well, like a tweet the other day on Twitter saying, poetry is mostly just learning a cool fact and wondering how you can turn it into a metaphor for something sad, <laughs> which I feel like is, it was retweeted, you know, a thousand times and had 6,000 likes, so I guess a lot of people feel that way. Um, this next one... I guess isn't so much like that. Um, it's called The Horses, but I, 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 it's not about horses, and I'm not sure what it is about, but I guess you guys can think about it. The Horses. Out in the wet fields, I crack the horses open like pistachios, peel off their thick hide, pull out another horse, and another inside, smaller each time, like Russian dolls, like running into the distance. Is it any wonder we're all so tired? My eyes have grown eyes, have grown eyes. I count my fingers on my fingers, and my skin still feels tight. All night I would lie next to you, clung in sweat, your breath on my back, not caring about the long hours awake. My tongue never settled in my mouth. And I built us a house, but it was always on the horizon, and you were beautifully empty. I was ravenous hungry, down on my knees, unzipped at the seams, and now, like a scene from a film, all the fields are flooding with blood, and we both shield our eyes from the spent, open bodies, the stillness, the useless hooves and their silence, the hollow, red bowls of their beauty. Thanks. How are we doing for time? I have no concept. Great. Um, I maybe do a, a couple more, and then I'll go. <laughs> um, this one's called Still Warm. Uh, I guess it's about another real life and somewhat mundane experience, <laughs> which makes a poem happen. Still Warm. I am sorry for the things I said when I should not have said them, and for all the things I did not say. My love tied knots in red rope and they caught in my throat, the plaited silk of her body's secret which opened to me like a flower. Yesterday, 
I went to a public toilet and the plastic seat was still warm. In the locked box of the cubicle, I could smell it, blood iron and salt. I thought of paper cuts, sunburn, how our fingertips wrinkle in the bath, how sadness, fragile as an insect's wing, falls from our eyes as water. What more can I say? How soft my body is, how soft all bodies are. Isn't it so lovely and strange, so improbably beautiful? One more or I go? One. They're all short. This one's good. Um, As in short. Um, Similarly, uh, from a a real-life experience I had the other day at uh, a tour of an astronomy building. It's called Light Buckets. If you want to catch rain, you use a bucket, a bigger bucket, and you catch more rain. The same can be said for telescopes, which catch light. The bigger the lens, the more light it catches, and so astronomers often call them light buckets. There's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza. Dear Liza, and the hole is a bright bulb spilling ribbons of gold on the carpet. You, out in the heavy rain of a thunderstorm, catching sparks in your cupped palms, small suns burning rivers down your arms. And laughter is simpler, silent, and it shines from my eyes as pure light. And a rainstorm at night sets the dry ground on fire. Thank you. everybody, I'm Ethna and I'm going to be your MC for the next little while. I'd just like to say how much I loved it when Dino was reading and he read about the wind and this fantastic wall of bunting came down. Um, I'd, I just want Paul to see that uh, the version of the list that you gave me was no good for people who demand large print, so I brought my own. Um, I'm really, really delighted to introduce Ashleen Fahey, um, who is uh, just amongst us at the moment. Ashleen has performed in the Houses of Parliament and at Glastonbury, that's easy for you to say, and at Glastonbury, and was Young Poet Laureate for London in 2014 to 15. Ashleen Fahey, everybody. Hi, how are you? Good? Oh, yeah, perfect, thank you. Um... I'm a little bit out of breath. I've just ran from the station. This is the closest I've ever cut it, but I made it, so everything is fine. Um, And I thought that what I would do, Paul, I might just ask you for um, the time after I've read a few of these, but I wanted to share some other people's poems because I thought this was a good space to do it in. Um, So I was going through my shelves, picking out um, collections that I've had over the years. So the first one I want to start with is Bob Hickok from Insomnia Diary that has the most amazing cover and it's the first poem in the collection. Bottom of the ocean. At least once you should live with someone more medicated than yourself. A tall man. He closed his eyes before he spoke, stocked groceries at night and heard voices. We were eating cereal for the first time, cream of wheat. He said that she said, we're all out of Evers, without explaining who she was 
or how many evers we had to begin with, or where they were kept. I slept with an extra blanket that night. This was strange, but that year I had to read Plato for a grade. Each circles the bastard child of a perfect O, I remember he said. And Kierkegaard, I thought he was writing stand-up with the self is a relation which relates itself to its own self. But my roommate nodded as I read this aloud. He'd stood so long before carnival mirrors that the idea of a face being a reflection of a reflection of itself was common sense. On the calendar, the striptease of months, dust quietly gathering on the shoulders of older dust, and because he'd not taken the microwave apart and strapped its heart to his head or talked to the 60-watt bulb on the porch, he thought he was better and flushed his pills. Soon he was back where windows are mesh and what's sharp is banished and what can be thrown is attached. So unless you can lift the whole building, everyone is safe. We had lunch a year later or he spun the creamer and wore skin made of glass while I ate a sandwich. And by that, I mean I was hungry. And he was sealed in amber, a call of drugs meant to withstand ants and fire. Nor did his mouth work but to hold words in. I'd wanted to know all the time what happened to our Evers. To ask if he remembered what he said and explained to him he was an oracle that day. I wanted him to tell me about the woman who whispered or screamed that our chances were up, because the phrase had stayed in my life as a command to survive myself. That was the day I learned you can sit with someone who's on the bottom of the ocean and not get wet. By the time he said things were good, he'd poured 12 sugars into a coffee he never touched. I really, um, no, it's fine, thank you. Um, I really, really love Bob Hickok, he's amazing. Um, and this collection, which again I've had for a long time, is Julia Copas, The World's Two Smallest Humans. Um, and I love the title of this poem. I've tried to write ones that are similar, and I, don't, I haven't got there yet, but. This is the poem in which I have not left you. This is the poem in which I have not left you. The doors of the green dragon are not bolted behind our backs. The pink-faced landlady, may she be blessed, has not abandoned us to the unseasonable cold, that March evening of your 37th year. In the gloom that hangs over South Street, in the quiet made of the humming of streetlights and the moon, the horn from a distant freight train does not sound. I do not turn, my tongue is tied, my hands, whatever there is to say is left unsaid. And since I dare not speak, nothing transpires. The street, in the moments after, does not shrink to the slam of a door, the flare of an engine. You, suddenly elsewhere, you imagined, gone, but seen, still seen, the night stretching between us, cursing the fog on the black downs, curving, finally, 
into the narrow driveway of the cottage. Our cottage, I meant to say, with its yellow walls, its broken gate. I might have forgotten those, and the fields, and the light, were it not for the fact that this is the poem in which we do not part, but lie like lovers, one of whom is sleeping. My head, as always, nearest the leaky window through which the old sounds reach me. Rain in the trees, a gust of wind, a tipper truck, a siren threading its way through the dark. But you'll not wake. Your ears are shut. You won't admit a thing. Then, further off, after the rain is done, the voice of the red start calling, do it, do it, calling from the smallest tree in the garden. Thank you. How long do I have left? A couple of minutes. Okay, I will do one of my poems to end on. And you can stop me if I go over. I want to write a holistic poem that brings me closer to redemption. I ask not what you have done or who you have loved. What matter if it is me upon your chest this morning? Accept the love we deserve. Accept the love we have hungered for on too many nights. Do not pretend you do not recognize it as it moves towards you with grace. What is the heaviest love inside of you? Do you sometimes want to tear it out? Remember how to float in a swimming pool. Face down, you are a star of the sea. Strange and familiar. I saw a picture of a house in a forest by a lake. I asked if you would ever live there. You said yes. Your answer surprised me. I become a woman who knows, like my grandmother did, how to collect logs to burn, even when rain has dampened all signs of earth. I become a woman who wakens naturally and never sleeps beyond the first signs of light. The woman I become has healthy skin. It glows, luminous, and looks like a sheet of water. She told me there is time, still, to let anything take shape in your heart. So much space for what you have not yet loved, but are willing to. Talk of the cavern that was in you when you looked out at the quivering blue of Cool Park. What? Can you remember, was it that you were asking of it? To fill you, to flood every place you've ever lived, to let you lay just above it without touching? What is time when we hold each other and don't sleep? What is time when we sleep touching and don't age? Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the poetry. Thank you very much, Ashling. You are listening to part one of the Permathon, an all-day non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly slash poemdonate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's programme of events, publications, education and outreach work, and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Café. 
That's bit.ly slash poem donate. Thanks. Our next poet is Greg Freeman. And when I read that he edits the poetry website right out loud, I went on to have a look at it and straight away added it to my favourites. It's a really, really informative space. And he also organises an open mic night in Woking. So everybody, Greg Freeman. Thanks very much, and thanks, Paul, for inviting me to take part in this great privilege. Um, uh, I write, write a lot of poems about trains and railways, and um, this is one of them. It's called The 2153. The train was packed. I apologised for the pasty. She said she quite understood. I know, you just couldn't resist. Her first day back, after taking time off for a gallstone, extracted where no man should go. Very curious, this. She confessed to dreams of starting an allotment. I told her the tale of my gardening years, defeated by weeds. As our knees touched, I also mentioned, for no good reason, the price of cake in National Trust cafes. Me too. Victoria Jam Sponge, she agreed. The guard came round and I paid up. The talk returned to the pasty, the last crumbs gone. In trouble when you get home, she inquired, something waiting on the table. My stop was soon, no time to explain all the ins and outs. As it happens, no, I replied. I got up to go. She stayed on for Aldershot. It's good to talk, she said, by way of saying goodbye. Yes, so um, this, I hope you won't take offence or take it the wrong way, this T-shirt, but uh, um, it's, it's in support of a, of a minority group who uh, I, f I fear uh, are much denigrated and have no statutory legal protection. Uh, this poem's called Train Spotters. <laughs> Rain streaming from moors, brimming the becks, stench of firebox, oily overalls, flat caps... They call us train spotters, but it's not that. We hear the grunt and bark of a dragon crawling from the mountain's heart, a grumbling volcano. Clattering down from Todmorden to Hebden Bridge takes seven minutes, three tunnels and one viaduct. Sandwich munching, teeth swilling anoraks. They say we seek refuge in regulations and timetables, the permanent way. Exclamation mark chimneys punctuate and remind the valleys. Apartments, retail outlets, hockneys housed in the magnate's mill. Healthy homes for workers paying market rents snapped up by young professionals. We hear the hills Right, this uh, next poem is actually about uh, Bramwell Bronte. Uh, uh, recently I was at, well, last week I was at the Howarth Parsonage again and I see they've now got a room uh, dedicated to Bramwell Bronte, a sort of a bit like Tracy Emin's Unmade Bed. There's a, a, it, the bed's in a terrible state and there's papers and everything all over the floor. And Simon Armitage has something to do with that, apparently. Um, so, and, and apparently about my wife uh, monitors Radio 4 on my behalf and she told me last night that he's written a string of poems 
uh, on Bramwell Bronte. So I hope he hasn't stolen my thunder. Uh, this is, um, but this is also about trains as well. Um, it has the epigram from Ian Dury. Uh, I could be the ticket man at Fulham Broadway Station uh, from his song What a Waste. And it's called Booking Clerk at Sorby Bridge Station. Forsook the snug at the blank ball to tramp the moors with a sister or walked across to Hebden Bridge and Todmorden to watch the building of the Manchester Leeds Railway. Portrait of the artist as a young genius, apple of his father's eye. Dreamed of joining the Royal Academy or placing poems in Blackwood's magazine. Became a booking clerk at Sorbury Bridge Station. There were prospects. Before long, the station would be a busy junction, trains running east and west. Before then, there was time for drinking with a station master, reputed to knock back ten pints, then report for work. Housed in a wooden cabin, lodged at the Pear Tree Inn just above the station. Off duty, he walked the canal towpath, or supped at the Navigation Inn with the boaties, caroused with the Liverpool Irish, spirits veering high and low. Promoted up a branch line to London Foot as station master, before being banished because of discrepancies in the accounts. Sent packing as tutor by the husband of Mrs. Robinson, returned to the parsonage in disgrace. Once he had conjured up a wonderful land with his siblings. Now he suffered silently as the sisters retold those childhood adventures, painted himself out of their picture. Uh, right, that's the last of the train poems for now. Um, the, the last two poems are what I would call um, uh, my name-dropping poems. And this is the first one. It's called Watching England with Caroline Duffy. <laughs> Seems like a dream now. The one-fourth scoreline. Lampard's goal that never was. Watching the game with Caroline Duffy. She turned up amid the half-time gloom in the pub. Asked if it was okay to sit near the TV. I made some crack about political historical contexts and Nazi fugitives and why Uruguayan officials favour Germans. She half smiled. That's when I guessed. The sort of joke you only make watching footy. Sport and literature don't mix. Well, not in my book. But I peppered the goal with whippered witty aperçus, thinking England's laureate might write about the three lions who had watched the match with her. Read it that night at the festival. <coughs> she didn't, of course. Uh, although at one point she did ask if Crouch had come on. Uh, the referee blew. Did England's worst World Cup finals beating mean I should give up football for poetry? The camera lingered on Capello, the tabloid target. He should be carrying an umbrella, she said. And this, this final poem is, uh, recounts the fact that I have actually uh, been on a number one hit record. Um, although you can't necessarily make out my voice on the recording. Um, this is called Chuck Berry's Ding-a-Ling. <laughs> Halfway through the year, I knew I wouldn't make the grade. A freezing night in 72, the time of Bloody Sunday. Tension in Coventry. But rock and roll can save your soul 
Johnny, be good. Lift me from my misery. I had nowhere else to go. The duck walk, Nadine, Carol, Maybelline, and that novelty song that must have eaten half the set. The wolfish grin, part shaman, part showman. We bellowed as Chuck gleefully shortchanged us. The joke was they recorded it. Months later, top of the charts. Hundreds of us on the vinyl. Number one, Ma, that's me. Danced out of the Locarno at midnight, past my mates queuing to see the Floyd, the night that was the start of my comeback. <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you very much for keeping us on track. For keeping us on track, I said. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I mentioned I'm a member of Forest Poets, but uh, it's down to being a member of Forest Poets that I'm here today and I've got involved in this wonderful world of poetry, along with my fellow Forest Poet, Michael Shan. I really wanted to say something like he's my nemesis, but I can't because he's such a really nice man and such a lovely poet, and his poetry collection called To London is available now. He works for the charity Carers UK, where he coordinates their annual creative writing and photography competition. Michael Shan. Thank you very much, Ethner, and lovely to be in this uh, hallowed room. Um, I'm going to read a series of, uh, of poems from my uh, little London book, which is a series of... 48 line poems all about different uh, bits of London. Um, you might hear from my voice, I'm not originally from here. First one is about me struggling to find the right metaphor for the Thames path as, it's as it winds its way for miles and miles along, along the river. The Thames path, a silver strand around a neck of gold. Or how about poetry? beside prose, an accompaniment, an accomplice, the lone flute in violin concerti. Your parallel life is my self-promise of other ways through infinite city. These waters are young, the river is old. Let's follow the path wherever it goes. Um, and I'm sure you'll all notice over the past decade there's been a, a fantastic flourishing of beards in London and uh, only one in the audience today. But uh, sometimes you can be walking down the street and uh, you, know, you can see someone in a dark suit with a big bushy beard and you think, I'm sure that was Charles Dickens. And uh, <laughs> this one's London Beards. No way. There's W.G. Grace watching the ashes on a big screen at Euston. And look, there's Darwin queuing, pa queuing patiently outside the Natural History Museum. That could be Dickens crossing Southwark Bridge on one of his long midnight meanders. And here's D.H. Lawrence in the veil of health, shades and shorts, looking like he's still the man. 
And one of my other, this is one of my favourite rooms in London, one of my other favourite rooms in London is the um, Treasures of the British Library room, which if, you, if you've never been is absolutely fantastic place, full of manuscripts of um, famous novels, you see like, write, the original handwriting of Charlotte Bronte, Jane Austen. I was there the other day and there was uh, the, the first draft of uh, Wilfred Owen's Anthem for Doomed Youth, which uh, was fantastic to see. This is Beatles' lyrics, the British Library. The Magna Carta, Leonardo's sketches, a score for Spem in Allium. But what stuck with me was the low-lit hush, the felt-tipped scrawl of help feeling its way down the page, the impromptu scribble of a hard day's night on a boy's birthday card. That's something from nothing art emerging through all the lovely slapdash crossings out. Um, right, I don't know if has anyone ever been been at a, a Shakespeare play and kind of guiltily wished it was over? <laughs> um, Many a time. I love, love Shakespeare, but yes, often I have that feeling towards the final act. Um, this is called The Globe. Late September, measure for measure, not one of his best, but still, everyone's rapt, reverent, like the stage is an altar. Heretical to wish it over, but my legs ache, my bum is blasphemous. When it is over, I carry the loss for days, knowing I'd missed the perfect end of summer with my oldest unknown friend. <laughs> Was anyone at the, the Brexit march a couple of months ago? Yeah, a few, a few of you. So yeah, a fantastic day with, felt like half of London was there and also it was that kind of repressed anger, but it was also good-humoured and uh, lovely, lovely day out. And uh, this, was co this is called uh, Middle Class Warriors. At Green Park, we push into the huge, hospitable crowd, scattering our sorries like confetti, then shuffle down Piccadilly, chanting meekly under polite placards. The stronger swear words are middled with stars. We leave the march at Trafalgar Square, popping into the National Gallery to see Sura and other works of pointillism. Right. Does anyone have any requests? Any, any favourite bits of London that you'd, I may have a poem about? I've got Waltham, so yeah. I'll, I'll come back to my Waltham, so anyone, anyone else? All oh, right, do you know what? I have got, I didn't bring it with me. I'll do Walthamstow. <laughs> I'll do Walthamstow, which, anyone been to Walthamstow? Well, yeah. yeah. Um, so this one is, wherever you are in Walthamstow, it kind of bordered at the northern edge by the, the, uh, the North Circular, the big kind of busy road that runs around North London, and, uh, and you can always hear that kind of, it's always kind of just there if you listen, on a, on a, especially on a clear evening. Midnight, North Circular. 
Stepping out into the garden's mock starlight, Walthamstow's electric phosphorescence, I hear, maybe twenty thrown pebbles away, the assiduous whispering of the sea, as if I had stepped outside a clifftop cottage at midnight in summer on the Isle of Lewis and caught myself against all knowledge trusting the shy swish of a dual carriageway. Okay, any other requests? <laughs> oh, that's it. Any other, uh, bit? sorry? Do you know what? I, have, <laughs> I haven't got Covent Garden, but I have got, which is very close, Soho. So I've got, oh, one, of, one of the things I, I love about um, London is all, is all the names that you get, and, uh, and this, this one's called Soho Pubs. The Intrepid Fox, the Moon and Sixpence, John Snow, the Midas Touch, the Endurance, the Crown and Two Chairmen, the Dog and Duck, the Pillars of Hercules, the Lyric, Shakespeare's Head, the Shaston Arms, the Toucan, the George, the ship, the Admiral Duncan, the Nellie Dean, the moon underwater, the French house, Molly Muggs, the glass blower. <laughs> time for another poll? Uh, oh, really? Oh, plenty of time. All right, another one from Soho then. Uh, it's about a, a, a poet, Dylan Thomas. This is uh, Drinking with Dylan Thomas in the French house, which was one of his, his favorite pubs in Soho. Two lemonades, ice. I push one along the bar. He turns, laughs, tells me where to go. I think you've had enough, I say. Enough, he says. Who are you to say what's enough? An air of ale and smoke, the stale silence of Soho afternoons. I'm just, I say, thinking of the years you lost, of all your blank pages. He tells me where to go. <laughs> any, anywhere else? Any, any other favorite bits or landmarks of London? West London. Sorry? West London. You know, it's not my um, strong point, <laughs> West London. But, yeah. uh, oh, gosh. No, I, I probably have somewhere. Sorry. Uh, King's Cross, yeah, I've got King's Cross. Uh, yeah, um, the, uh, right, page 10. Right, this is uh, magnificent. The, the engine shed in, uh, in King's Cross, I think when it was all kind of refurbished and it's, it's really impressive. So this is called Engine Shed Roof, King's Cross. A vorticist vision of geometric shadows and sunlight conniving with steel arches Skylight, the poetry of perfect curves, as if industry and art conspired to feed perpetual war. Four lines of archers, biceps pumped with a bone-warping draw force, aiming their meek materials at the clouds. Poplar, hemp, and yew, arrow, string, longbow.
I'll maybe finish. I must be almost. Uh, yeah, okay. Short one, short one. Um, so I've got another volume of the London poems coming out later in the year, um, which will include this one called The London Eye, which is a bit of a dystopian one of uh, what London could look like in the future. What shall we do when the tourists have gone with its rusting scaffolding, its glass pods? 32 rotating greenhouses? No, I like that. Or how about a prison for dozens of disgraced celebrities? Hmm, I suppose not. What we'll really need is to rise above ourselves, to look down on everything we had, and then let rot. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Our next poet is Heather Molson. I hope I've said that right. And she has published her first pamphlet. She also sketches and does cartoons, mostly cat-related. Heather, welcome to the stage. Oops, oh, just down a bit there. Thank you very much for asking me here today. Um, I have, I'll read some poems from my pamphlet, Bunty, I Miss You, and... Um, a lot, lot of people in the room knows this relates to Bunty Comics, so you'll guess which era it is, really. Um, uh, the first two poems, really, um, are about cousins. Uh, most of us have had cousins, been landed with cousins, and it either goes one way or another with a cousin. You're either very close, or and, and this cousin certainly went another way. Um, this is uh, Lisa. Oh, Cousin Lisa, with your white long pigtails and creamy skin, your brownie uniform covered with badges. Wholesome, yet deadly, I hated you so much. Behind closed doors in your pristine white bedroom, you told me how you really have a baby. The soundtrack of hair playing continuously because it had the word shit in one of the songs. Downstairs, you'd show off your coloured telly while your posh mum shoved currant bread at me, calling it tea when it wasn't even hot. You stayed intact while I walked out your door in pieces, never to be the same again. I loved you so much. Uh, thank you. And um, the next one is sort of... Uh, Yes, it's kind of cousin-related, that's better, kind of cousin-related. Um, this is actually um, about the best wedding I ever went to as a kid. It, it was better than my own, it was better than anybody's I've been to since. It was a fantastic wedding. Uh, this is called Bridesmaids. At the wedding, my two cousins get me in the corner and tell me the bride is going to have a baby. What? Aloof cousin Sandy? And why didn't she make me bridesmaid too, the snotty mare? <laughs> My cousins show off their pink bridesmaid's dresses and matching shoes, even though my aunties expressly told them not to. I hope it rains all fucking day, I said. They run and tell my mum, but she doesn't say anything having uttered the exact same words before we set off. She's busy bitching to my auntie Brenda, 
She calls the groom a streak of paralysed piss. I long to know what this means, but she just tells me to clear off. After we toasted the bastard bridesmaids, I have a puff of my brother's cigarette, and my mum has a punch-up with Auntie Doreen. We cheered her on, my cousin Derek choking with embarrassment. The bride's father, Uncle Alan, suggests we leave. My mum said it would be a pleasure and cuts herself three pieces of wedding cake. On the journey home, I hold a handful of sodden confetti. Well, that was an ordeal, me mum says. But I couldn't answer her. I didn't know what she was talking about. It had been such a beautiful wedding. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, the next one is a, a, called The Cigarette Affair, and it was about a doomed romance and thwarted love. Um, so this is The Cigarette Affair. I kept the crushed fag packet under my pillow. Silk cut. Long empty, of course. He bought those for me, even though he was nearly skint. That meant he loved me, didn't it? Eyes red, head heavy, lips dry. I love him, we'll run away together. Silence. Bastard parents eat their liver and bacon. I'll get pregnant, I shout, trying hard not to blush. He'll come back for me. We were meant to be together. The moment I find true love with a real person, someone who was actually in the same room, it gets brutally snatched away. I'll never kiss anyone like that again. Bastard parents have ruined my life. Mum said he was only after one thing. Men like that often were. But she was wrong. He held me so tenderly. And he bought me my fags. Surely, if he came back for me now, my dad wouldn't hit him again. He'd see it was true love. Anyway, he's not with his wife anymore. <laughs> Mate comes round. Tells me he's going out with Renata. A year above me, red hair, does it with anyone who asks nicely. How could he? Her whole future swept away for the nearest scrubber. Didn't those 20 fags mean anything? <laughs> Bastard parents get wind of this, but say nothing. Only that I can go to the disco as long as I'm back by 10 sharp. I throw the fag packet away. Um, and, and the next one is called um, Scrubber 2, and it was, it was a clash with um, a girl in my class, um, a very precocious girl, and, um, and, and um, a fifth-form heartthrob. So uh, it's, a, it's a slightly different... Um, it's slightly different style, but this is Scrubber 2. Julie storms into the classroom. I've packed him in, she shouted. More like the other way round, I think, over my geography revision. This was Dave, her current pash. 
Julie's such a scrubber. She does it with every boy going. My mate says she even demands it. But Dave was not any boy, I sigh wistfully. My heart lurches as I recall that dishy former fifth former. He's only after a shag, Julie bellowed. Sounded tip-top to me, but they say it hurts, even with someone as dreamy as him. Not all of us have been on the pill since we were 12. By some miracle, Dave's lips meet mine, and the world becomes such a clearer place. I learn the humiliation of desire, while my coat stays chastely buttoned. Julie gets wind of this romance and makes another play for him. But I could offer what she could. But when I did, he just held me silently, tenderly. <coughs> After a weekend of the phone not ringing, Julie comes in triumphantly on Monday morning. Dave sends his love. She smirked. I hide my tears in a maths equation, going off with the nearest scrubber after kissing me like that, the rotten bastard. But the truth is, I didn't know where to start. Why couldn't I be like her, worldly, familiar with the back seat, demanding sex? But then I would have missed out on so much more. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, I think that's all right. Thank you, Heather. Our next poet is Jake Wildhall, who I think might have given a shout-out for West London a little while ago. Um, Jake is co-founder of Boomerang, a spoken word night in West London. He's the author of Solomon's World, which was long-listed for the Saboteur pamphlet of the year. Uh, this year, I think, was it? Last year. Jake Hall. Jake Wildhall. lights are a bit bright. How is everyone? Good. Forgive me if I butcher this. Uh, I hope I do here, surrounded by ocean, breathing in time with the waves, here that is as beautiful as hope, here that is as silent as the graveyard full of unmarked stones, here that is rich in rebellion, I hope it is here. Normal is such a boring word, but it's probably the right one. I guess everything said whilst holding a, bread, a basket of freshly baked bread is a question mark to you anyway. Cleaning is therapy when it's the only, th only time you have to yourself. I'm not doing very well at selling this bread I'm holding. Would you like some? I've been remembering all my dreams again, but not sharing them with anyone. It's like having more feelings. The bread is going stale. I think it might be okay if you toast it. Heat is a cure for most things. However temporary it is, it is always above average. I guess I can share my dreams with you. I keep killing people by mistake. I always wonder how many of my alternate realities I have killed myself. Uh, 
you are grieving at the bar, have been for 922 days straight, glass of brave-faced denial chaser. I see your reflection at the bottom of my glass too. Two weeks ago, we held each other and cried. It's the most natural thing we have done in years. Last week, I held your partner in my arms while she cried. I have not known how to reconcile our relationship since. I know how hard it is to lose a parent. At the moment, you are killing both of mine. There is a storm in my stomach every time I think of you. Um, okay. <laughs> That time you followed your bag through a window asking for help in a language all of us understand but none of us speak. They gave you an option. There is only one correct answer for. We discussed this, pills still hidden 24 years later. I have made a home of your sofa. I talked to myself in that same language. Neither of our moons can be full. We acknowledge everything with silence. We don't look after anything in the present. We will fix it all once it's broken. How is everyone? How am I doing for time? Have I got loads uh, of time? Oh, wow. Woo, slow down. <laughs> all right. How are you all doing? I think I've got time to ask everyone at this point. Not <laughs> much. Okay. I'm going to end up reading the full manuscript for my next pamphlet at this rate. So what I'm, I'm going to do at this point is I'm just going to go through the pages like this, ominously looking at them and going, hmm. <laughs> oh, that one. Ah, oh, yes. Hmm. I don't know how long I can continue this before you get very bored. Um, okay. Uh -oh. Do you remember before the wheel was invented or before the first lightning bolt hit wood in people's view Holding hands and the stars must have been the original Netflix and chill. Today, we write lists and draw star charts and hold ourselves up to them for approval. Food coming to the door is just something that happens, just like breathing or phone screens. We drown ourselves and pray for October. October is a traitor, though. Stands at the cross-junction with a crashed car and no apology. London is the world until it is impossible. Sings all the wrong hymns in your church. An angel grows in your room. At night, her halo wakes the house. She speaks to you in a language you have learned to understand so well. It is terrifying. She finally rests. You know the difficulty setting of this game is hope. Photos hold the parts of you that you mustn't forget. Wheels are only good to drivers that focus, and fire often needs to be put out. I'm not doing that thing again. This is genuine. I didn't, um, I didn't have like a set prepared. And all of these poems are rather... Okay. Um, so this, uh, this poem is after Joel Taylor. <laughs> it's called, it's a 12-week course. When your blood boils out of your skin because of absence, when your whole body is a car crash because you must not, 
when you become a lost five-year-old boy and your screams turn to silence, when your brain is a protest and your skull a kettle, when you breathe ash in recognition of your pain, when a, pain, a pin drop becomes a racket, when your thoughts become voices, when the voices become continuous, only ever saying step forward or swallow, when you treat yourself to apathy, when the funeral marches your footsteps, so how can you escape it, when you grieve for the future and your grand tells you to vote, but voting feels like Jack chewing gum while you are starving, when you are an atheist who rolls the burning bush into the sheets of your abridged Bible every morning so the Holy Ghost can pass through you, when, walking is, when waking is all you remember and it is a chore, when everyone is out to get you, mum, partner, friends, they are all in on it and for no reason, when everything around you is your imagination, when then it all makes sense, when all of this becomes you. Find yourself 12 deep to a room full of anxiety, skin itch, coffee sip. Take a deep breath, kid. You're nearly there. <laughs> blank. Blank. Wake up, fall asleep, blank. Pick it up, put it down, I shouldn't, but why? You're missing the point, blank. Back to the start. When was the start? I'm losing my days. It's fine. No, it's not. Blank. Roll then again. Fine then again. Try this. It has no effect. Blank. Sleep is cause and effect. Blank. It has no effect. No more relief. Maybe this is the end. Roll. Blank. Roll then again. Fine. Then again. Try this. It has no effect. Blank. Wake up. Fall asleep. Blank. Pick it up. Put it down. I shouldn't. But why? You're missing the point. Blank. Sleep is cause and effect. Blank. Back to the start. When was the start? I'm losing my days. It's fine. No, it's not. Blank. It has no effect. No more relief. Maybe this is the end. The first time you feel this, it will be infinite. Not in a good way. Your day will drag like fingernails on chalkboards. You will ask yourself why the sun in a, in a clear sky is ugly. The morning will be an itch you can't scratch. Human contact and necessity. The sun will go down. Stars will come out. The heavens will be empty. At this point, you will, in one way or another, start again. How's everyone doing? Good, good, good. I mean, you know, have you, have you listened to the poems? So I t it's 50 50 right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, this poem is. Um, You know when you've decided to do something and then it, it, I was like, oh, I'm just going to do it and it's healing, but then other things. Anyway, this poem's called This is the Longest My Nails Have Been. This is the longest my nails have been in the relation to my anxiety. It's because I've been painting them. I paint them joy and relief and hope my life will reflect them. It does. I'm too lucky to be melancholy, too in love for that two new footsteps in my house, posting too many books, tweeting too many things, joy on my Instagram story, dad jokes on my Facebook, you're in bed painting your toenails and hoping for breath. My child is asking me to replicate her joy, so I do. I read books and switch to cartoons when my family calls. I wonder how many more times it will be not bad news, how loud I will play the cartoons when it is. I don't leave the house, 
I am worried I will get the call in public, both me and my daughter in the ball pit crying. I refuse to cry most days. Soon I won't have the strength. Soon I will call my mum and she will be so sad I can't be strong for her. Soon my uncle will break. Soon my grandmother, who I didn't know could be sad until this, will freeze. She will not be the woman I grew up with who would be. Soon your siblings will carry you. Soon the relatives will come when it's not Christmas or a wedding. Soon you will leave a widow. No matter how much we tell ourselves we are lucky for the time we have had, it will be too soon. It is always too soon. Launcher, Jake. Gorham Merrigan.